that's my idea of snack time, right? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, um, my name is Mac. Thanks so much for being here. Um, would like to just kind of start off with a little bit of story time. Is that okay? Yeah? Even if it's not, I have the microphone, so I'm going to do it anyway. So once upon a time... Uh, no, a guy was walking down the street one day, uh, not really paying a whole lot of attention, having a kind of a good day and, and stuff, enjoying the weather. And he was walking down the street, and he fell into a gigantic hole. I don't know. They didn't, like, cone it off or tape it off or something. I don't, I don't know what the issue was. But he fell in the hole, and the sides were incredibly steep and slick, and the hole was really, really deep. And he couldn't climb out. No matter what he did, no matter how hard he tried, he could not climb out of the hole. And so he was down in the hole waiting for somebody to walk by to see if anybody could give him a hand. And so uh, he sees uh, somebody walk by the hole, and it's a doctor. And he calls up and says, hey, hey, you. Hey, I fell in this hole. Could you help me out? So the doctor looks down writes a prescription, throws it in the hole, and walks on. Well, thanks. Okay. Um, what do I do now? And so he's waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting. He's getting a little scared now because, because nobody's coming by. And he looks up, and he sees a priest walk by. And he says, hey, Father, Father, hey, man, I, I, I fell down this hole. I'm getting scared because I can't get out. Can you, can you help me out? So the priest looks down and says, hey, God loves you, says a prayer for him, and then keeps moving on. And so now he's getting really scared. He's been down here for a while. He can't get out. Nobody's helping him. And he, he looks up and he sees a friend of his walk by. He's like, hey, Joe. Hey, Joe. Hey, it's me. Hey, man, I fell down this hole and, and I can't get out. I'm getting really scared. Can you help me out? So his friend looks down in the hole and says, sure. And he jumps in the hole. And so our guy in the hole looks at his friend. And he says, Joe, what are you, stupid? No, we're both down here. And his friend says, yeah, but I've been down in this hole before, and I know the way out. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for the privilege of reading your word together. God, I pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds and our ears to receive all that your Holy Spirit has for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been walking through the book of James for the last three weeks, and we've been asking ourselves a question. And this is the question. We're going to throw it up on the screen. Is the goal of my life to become more like Jesus? I think that's a great evaluation question for us as we walk through our daily lives. Is the goal of today, is the goal of my life at all to look more and more like Jesus? And we've been walking through the, the book of James to help us evaluate where we are in that process. Now, just as a reminder, James is written by a guy named James. Actually, his real name was Jacob, but we just transliterated that into James because they sound exactly the same. And so, uh, but we, uh, we, we translate it into James. He was the half-brother of Jesus, and uh, he was a major leader in the first century church. He was the, the leader in the church of Jerusalem, which was kind of considered the, the mother church, the church that all of the other churches started from as Christianity first started out. And James was a Jew, and he was, um, he was, a, he was a Christian Jew, and he didn't believe in his brother as the Messiah or as God uh, when during his brother's earthly ministry. It wasn't until after his brother was resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven on a cloud that he went, oh, wait, he might be God. 
I think I would probably feel the same way. And so he was uh, the pastor of Jews. And at the time, um, the, the Jewish people were really under a lot of persecution. There was a rebellion in the city of Jerusalem. And Caesar kind of dispersed them all throughout the, uh, the empire of Rome. And they were being severely persecuted, severely taxed. Caesar didn't like the Jews at all. He also didn't like the Christians. And so they were Christian Jews. And so things were really bad for them. But not only that. But they were ostracized and shunned by their own people because these were ethnic Jews that believed in Jesus as the son of God. And that was kind of a, a divisive topic of the day. And so these were kind of marginalized of the marginalized people. Nobody liked them and they weren't a part of any other community other than their own. It was kind of pretty bad. And so James is writing them because he, he's noticing and hearing some things that really have him concerned. And he bases this letter around the book of Proverbs as well as the teachings of Jesus, very specifically the Sermon on the Mount. And so the, the book of James has this really kind of Jewish feeling. Uh, it, it's, it's what's called wisdom literature. It's very Jewish in, it, in its theology and how it, it, how it thinks about certain issues because that's who he's speaking to. He's speaking to Jewish Christians all over the Roman Empire. And, there, and because it's wisdom literature, it's actually written to be memorized. So good luck with that. So you can memorize the book of James. Um, but here, here's, why, here's why that is. Because especially in that day, a lot of the people were illiterate. They didn't, they didn't know how to read. And so it was, it was great to write things, write these nuggets of wisdom in things that could be easily memorized. So as they're going about their day, they could pull from their memory ways on how to live their life appropriately. And so... What James does is he has this wonderful, and that's why they're kind of like each one of our super powerful, Pastor Corey calls them haymakers or gut punches or, or body blows of wisdom because they're easily remembered and, and we can use them to help measure out our life. And that's really kind of what we're using the book of James like. It's like a tape measure where we're measuring out to see how we're doing in certain areas of our life, Right? That's how, we're, that's how we're kind of using this particular, this particular book. And um, I'm using a handheld, so there we go. Fabulous, that was easy to do. I have used a tape measure before in my life. And last week we talked about, last week we talked about uh, really what does it mean to, to kind of be a doer of the word. We're actually gonna start there, actually in, in chapter one, verse 22. And here's why. Because the book of James is separated out into really kind of three sections. And the section that we're gonna talk about today for a little bit begins in chapter one, verse 19. But we're gonna bounce off of or springboard into our conversation from chapter one, verse 22. So they're gonna put it up on the big Bible in the sky. Here we go. Do not merely listen to the word and so decide Deceive yourselves, do what it says. Do not merely listen to the word and think you're okay, because it's one thing to hear the word, and it's another thing to, to kind of know the word. And what happens a lot of times, we hear the word and we know the word, and we think we're okay because we come to church and we hear the word, but we don't do the word, and so we're not as safe as we think we are. We're not as in the right place as we, as we think we should be. And so we really emphasize this idea of doing the word, last week. In fact, we mentioned that uh, probably one of the most famous uh, uh, brands in all of, uh, all of the world right now is Nike, and they borrowed their slogan from, from, uh, from James, just do it, right? Just do it. Let's go. Let's do this thing. 
And so I, I figured that if, if we're going to talk a little bit about what it means to do the word, because that's, that's actually a question that people have a lot when they come into my office for pastoral counseling and stuff. It surrounds this, this, this topic a little bit. What does it mean to do the word? But they say it more like, what does it mean to be a Christian pastor? What, what does it mean to have faith in Jesus? What does that look like? Like, what does God want me to do? I'm really confused. Christianity is really confusing to me. And, and in the course of the conversation over the last 26 years of ministry, when I have these conversations with people, it inevitably reaches, well, the Bible has a whole lot to say about what it means to be a Christian. God's not making us guess what it means to live this thing out. He actually tells us what he wants from us. Well, I don't read the Bible all that much because it's really confusing and I don't understand it. And I, I think... Here's what I've found over the course of my ministry. It's not that the Bible is confusing, although there are some things that we do have to chew on, some things things that we do have to, to contemplate and think about, but it's not that the Bible or Christianity is confusing. It's just that it's plain old hard. Because in our culture, in our day, at least for me, A lot of times we look for the secret ingredient or the secret key to unlock the secret door to live the best kind of life we've always wanted to live. And if we can find just that one special principle to lose 20 pounds today, we'll be all right. If we can just learn the three keys that most successful people, uh, most successful people use to have the life that you've always wanted, we'll be okay. And so we open up the Bible and we say, if I can find the one key to unlock the door to living a life that's as easy with rainbows and unicorns and Skittles pouring out of the sky it's going to be amazing and we look at it and it says be disciplined and we get confused that can't be it (laughs) there's got to be some number or something i'm supposed to know no it's hard work and so we get confused and we get really kind of disappointed because when we read scripture we recognize the fact that it's not easy to live a life that's not selfish. It's not easy to live a life that's not self-absorbed because that's what the world does. That's the world's value system, selfishness and self-absorption. And, and if you believe in yourself, you can accomplish anything. And that's really a lie from the pit of hell. You, you, if you believe in yourself, I could believe in myself all day long, and I'm not going to be a starting, guard, a starting guard or a forward for the Detroit Pistons. It's not going to happen. I'm short. I don't have a jump shot. I can't dunk. I'm not going to be a running back. I'm not going to play second base for the Detroit Tigers, although sometimes I think I probably could. And, um, but it doesn't matter how much I believe in myself. I'm just not going to be six foot eight. It's not going to happen. But that's what we do because our lives kind of, are kind of surrounded. We, we, we are, for some of us, myself included at times, let's be honest, I feel like I'm the center of the universe. But Jesus wants us to live a different kind of life where we're not self-focused, we're actually others-focused. And so it's really difficult to live this, this kind of life that he's called us to. And so when we read in the Bible that the secret to life is actually not to focus on yourself, but to focus on other people's, uh, to focus on what's best for them and to not be selfish, but to give, the, give up the things that you want for the sake of somebody else, that's a difficult thing to do. But we're called to be doers like that. And if we're called to be doers like that, then we should see that flesh itself out in our own life. The Bible isn't confusing. Christianity isn't confusing or complicated. It's just plain old hard. 
but we have to do it anyway. And what is this word that we're talking about? Because we're, we're supposed to be doing the word. Well, James says we should be receiving the word, and then he said we should be doing the word. Well, what is the word that we're supposed to be doing? Well, simply, it's the gospel. It's the belief that Jesus is God, and through him, we have the ability to live a life that we were created to live. That through him, we can be freed from the selfishness and the self-absorption that embodies the world value system. Through him, we can be freed from all of the insignificant things that we allow to define ourselves. Through him, we can be freed from all of the sin and the addictions and the shame that hold us back from living the life that we were created to live, a life that is in constant fellowship and communion with God that reflects his glory to the world around us. That sounds like an amazing type of life. But that's what the gospel is. That's what, that's what the word is. It's the gospel, the, the, the good news that we can live that kind of life. And it's through Jesus. And if we believe that it's through Jesus that we can live that kind of life, then we have to start looking at the life of Jesus as kind of the blueprint for our life so that when we use James as a measuring tool to see if our, if our walls are squared up and our foundation is level, we have a blueprint to, to work from. And that's the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so if we're going to be a doer of that word, then we need to ask ourselves another question. Does my life look like Jesus? Does my life look like Jesus? And so we're called to take out the measuring tool, right? We're called to take it out and start measuring up the walls. But unfortunately, I think what a lot of times we do is we start taking out the measuring tool and then we start measuring other people's walls. We start going over there, over to their house and measuring their walls and checking to see if their walls match the blueprint that we think Jesus looks like. And we start saying things like, huh, looks like you struggle with sexual identity. You don't look much like Jesus, so you must not be a Christian. Hmm. You still smoke. Well, that doesn't look like my idea of Jesus, so you must not be a Christian. Huh, look at that. You struggle with pornography or, or alcohol addiction. Yeah, that doesn't look like Jesus. You must not be a Christian. And we forget the teachings of Jesus that says, hmm, perhaps you should take the log out of your own eye before you start to adjust the speck out of somebody else's. Now, I'm not saying my heart, I'm not saying that we can't help one another get better. I'm not saying that we need to accept things in our lives that shouldn't be accepted in our lives. What I'm saying is we start to measure out other people's walls and we forget that our walls aren't squared. And James is basically saying, you know what, instead of taking the measuring tape out and measuring other people's walls, maybe you should start to measure your own walls for a little bit. And what's really interesting to me is that James doesn't seem to use the same units of measurement that we use. Because James doesn't come out and talk about some of the same things that maybe I just stated there. James doesn't say, hey, let's take out the measuring tape and see whether or not you voted Democrat or Republican. James doesn't do that. What James does in chapter 2, verse 1 
is this. This is what he tells us. He says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, there's the gospel side of things, right? Believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, those are people who have believed the word. This is what he says. Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Okay, wait. All right, what? James, there's a lot of things that you should be talking about. People have a lot of sexual immorality that we're dealing with. People are stealing things from other people, stealing things from people's uh, companies. Uh, people are committing adultery. Like, there's a lot of bad things going on. And James, James doesn't do that. James doesn't say, if you're a believer in our Lord Jesus Christ, and our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, you must not have sexual immorality, even though that's important to deal with, and even though God wants to deal with that in your life. What James says, first, is don't show favoritism. What James James says is, if you want to know if you look like Jesus, if you want to look like somebody who believes that he's the Lord, then how do you treat people? How do I treat people? That's pretty convicting. I got a lot of issues in my life that I got to deal with. And the thing that James wants to put his finger on in my life is how I treat people. Do I show favoritism and James focus on the, focuses on the socioeconomic dynamics of, of that day. He's talking about rich people and poor people. But I think it's appropriate for us to kind of extend that, and it wouldn't be too much of a reach and too much of a stretch because typically the rich people were the powerful and the poor people had no power at all. And so for us, the question then becomes, are we showing favoritism to people who are powerful, influential, rich, charismatic, good-looking, movie stars, athletes? Do we show them favoritism over people who have nothing that we think they can offer us? Because for James, it's deeper than just how we, how we act towards people. It's actually a deep-seated evil in our hearts. Because he doesn't think that it's just an outward thing. He said he thinks it comes from a selfish motivation. Because when I treat people, when I show favorites, when I declare that this group of people has more value than this, this group of people, what I'm saying is this group of people have more to offer me than these people. What I'm saying is that these people have more value than these people do. And in James's day, that was rich and poor. For us, it's influential, it's charismatic, it's good-looking. And what tends to happen, unfortunately, in our own lives, is we tend to, to kind of cruise by or walk by or run by the people who are marginalized in society so that we can take a selfie with the people that we value so that we can post it on Instagram and show other people how important we are. And James says that's not how this is supposed to be. If you're going to have faith in Jesus, you have to look like Jesus. And when we place a different kind of value from one group of people over to the other, what we're doing is we're doing it out of selfish ambition. We're doing it out of selfish reasons because there's something over here that we can get that we can't get from over there. Sometimes it's just as much influence. Sometimes we want to have power. Sometimes... 
it's because they can give us value that for some reason we haven't found in Jesus yet. And so we treat people on both sides, whether they have wealth and influence, whether they're good-looking or charismatic or influential, they have power, or they don't have anything that we think they can offer. They're poor, they're marginalized, they're, they're sick, they're broken, whatever, whatever it is that we used to define. What we do is we're treating both groups of people like they're commodities, Like the value that they have is based upon what we can do with them. But when Jesus was here on earth, what his life looked like was that he looked at people from all walks of life and he saw infinite potential, infinite purpose. He saw the image of of God in each one of them. And the same price that needed to be paid for the person who has wealth and influence and power is the same price that he paid for the people who have nothing. And oftentimes in the ministry of Jesus, he lifted the people who were poor and broken up. And he told us who have a lot to look at them and to emulate them because all they had in life was faith. He said, have this kind of faith. The faith that trusts me for the very bread you eat every day. You see, James 2 verse 4 says this. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That's pretty convicting. See, for James, it's not just right or wrong. It's not just fair or unfair. James says it's evil for us to Show favoritism, because what favoritism at its heart is discrimination. And favoritism, discrimination, and division have no place in the body of Christ. Every person has equal value, purpose, and potential. And Jesus spent an awful lot of time, energy, and paid a very high price to take the people who were marginalized, the people who were on the outside, and bring them inside. The people who didn't have community, he did an awful lot to bring them into community. Who are we to step into that place and say, you can't be here anymore? And James is talking to people who were marginalized people people who were disregarded and marginalized by their society and they were marginalizing others. And I wonder sometimes if I do the same thing. If I start judging people's worth based upon the world's value system instead of based on what Jesus sees in them. It's not just a world thing. It happens in the church as well. We idolize and we prop people. We force people up on pedestals because they're charismatic and because they're popular and they're famous and they're wealthy and they have influence. And then when they act like a human being and they fall, we crucify them and knock them off the pedestal. And it's our own fault that they were there to begin with. You see, James reminds us of a teaching 
of Jesus. And this is what, this is what James says in chapter 2, verse 5. Check this out. He says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who loved him? This should sound eerily familiar because it's taken straight from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, but it's exactly, it's identical to what, what's recorded in Luke chapter 6. This is what Luke tells us. Looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. What we do is we, we bypass the marginalized, we bypass the poor, we bypass the insignificant in our own eyes in order to make accommodations for people who have something that we feel we can get from, who are poor and influent, or who are rich and influential. And, and it's not bad to be poor, and it's not bad to be rich. It's not bad to have influence. It's not bad to have charisma. That's not bad. And the poor aren't better than them. What I'm saying is they're worth the same to Jesus. When you look around this room, we are all sinners in need of a Savior. We are all messed up people who are being cleaned up by God. Not one of us is worth more than the other. And there are those of you that have come into church for the first time because somebody some time ago made you feel worthless. I want you to know that you were worth Jesus dying on the cross. That's how much you're worth, regardless of what your socioeconomic status is, regardless of how many followers you have on Instagram, regardless of whether or not you have a voice. Jesus died so that God could be in a relationship with you. That's how much you're worth. And I don't mean to sound angry or, or super passionate about it, but I am passionate about it because this is my story. I had made a mess of my life. I lived in shame, embarrassed about the decisions, not qualified to be on any platform. I know I'm standing on a platform and I speak to thousands of people, but that wasn't always the case. And it was godly men and women in the midst of my shame, in the midst of my mess that saw purpose in me and looked like Jesus in that moment because they loved me beyond the mess. See, James says, in verse 8, check this out. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But he goes on to say, but if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. So James is telling us that if we, that if we show favoritism for one group over another group, we're actually sinning. And he equates that sin to murder and adultery. Because if the entire law, if the entire teachings of the law in the Old Testament, the Torah, was love God more than anything else and love your neighbor as yourself, if you show favoritism, that means you are disregarding half of the law. And so you're guilty of breaking all of it. And for James, it's one thing to to know that, it's one thing to hear that, it's another thing to do that. Because for James, it's not good enough to just know that I should do those things. 
There has to be some kind of transaction that happens in my life that compels me to act. You see, if you believe that Jesus Christ is your glorious Lord, then it should compel you to act like Jesus did in his life and in his ministry. And what we do is we say, if Jesus is your Lord, then you shouldn't have doubt. You shouldn't struggle with sexual identity. You shouldn't have addictions. You shouldn't struggle with sin. That's not what James is saying. What James is saying is, if you are to look like Jesus, then it should compel you to do something. And he brings up the poor again. And this is what he says. Check this out. In verse 14 through 17, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it isn't accompanied by action, is dead. It's dead. Now, James isn't saying that God loves us more if we do good works. James isn't saying that if we do good works, we'll deserve the salvation and, and the forgiveness that, we, that we've gained. What James is saying is if you believe it, you'll do it. Because James is a Jew. And what you might not know about Jewish culture is believing and doing are the same thing. So for James... Believing equals doing. In our culture, believing means feeling. But for Jews, for James, and for us, believing means doing. If you believe it, you'll do it. If you do it, you believe it. If you don't believe it, you'll never do it. And if you never do it, you, never, you obviously never believed it. And he brings up the poor again. And he says, if you believe that Jesus is Lord, then you'll spend the time that Jesus spent with, with the people that Jesus spent his time with. And that was the poor and the marginalized, people who were cast out and people who didn't care, the broken, the hurting, the widow, the orphan, the sick. The people on the other side, the people who voted differently, who believed differently. Those are the people that Jesus hung out with. Those are the people that Jesus spent time with so that he could lift them up because they had value. James brings up Abraham in the Old Testament. And Abraham, he said, believed God, and he did something about it. His belief in God's promise compelled him, and his trust in who God was compelled him to act. And then James brings up Rahab. Rahab wasn't even an Israelite, and she was a prostitute. But her belief in the God of Israel compelled her to act on behalf of God's purposes. So the question then becomes for me, and if you're anything like me, and I know I am, I hope for you. The question then becomes, what has my faith caused me to do? We've spent the last four weeks loving our neighbors as ourselves. We've spent the last four weeks making impact in this community because we love people and we want to help people. And it's been wonderful to see that as a response from such a devastating natural disaster. The danger is that it stops 
and we don't continue to love our neighbor as ourselves. But it's been wonderful to see our church rise up and be the church. Let's let it continue. What has our faith caused us to do lately? Has our faith caused us to see somebody in a hole, say a prayer and walk on by? Or has our faith caused us to jump down in the hole to help them because we've been in the hole ourselves and we know the way out? You see, it's one thing to believe that Jesus is the answer to get out of the hole. It's another thing to jump in the hole and have faith that he's going to do it. What has our faith caused us to do? See, James in chapter 2, verse 26 says this. As the body without the spirit is dead, as our bodies without the breath of God in it is dead, so too faith without deeds is dead. If you aren't doing, you aren't believing. It's not if you believe in Jesus, you won't sin anymore. It's not if you believe in Jesus, you won't have struggles anymore. If you believe in Jesus, you should treat people differently. The fruit of your life on how you treat people should reflect more like Jesus and not like the world. So I ask myself, what has my faith caused me to do today? Has it caused me to walk by? Or has it caused me to get into the mess and to help bring people out? Because if somebody can do it for me, I can do it for someone else. So I want to talk to two types of people today and ask the question, what does this mean for us? If you're here today and you've been a believer in Jesus Christ for years and years and years, I want to ask you this question. What relationship in your life has this conversation hit today? Is there an area or relationship in your life where you have been disregarding people for the sake of somebody else in terms of influence or things that you can get out of them, but yet you've disregarded the marginalized and the oppressed and the broken and the voiceless? I asked my kids this. I don't know why I'm saying this. I didn't say this in the last service. I asked my kid this almost, kids this almost every day when they came home from school. Who did you sit with at lunch today? Did you find somebody that nobody else was sitting with and join them? Because Christianity is about bringing people from the outside to the inside and showing them that they're loved beyond their circumstance. So what relationship has this hit for you today? The second group of people. If you're here, maybe it's your first time in a long time in church. Because sometimes, somewhere, a long time ago, somebody who said they believed in Jesus didn't act very much like Jesus. And so you rejected the very relationship that could give you the hope and the healing that you so desperately need. Because you find yourself in the middle of a hole and you can't get out. I want to invite you on that journey today. If you want to live a life that you were created to live, 
a life connected to God and reflecting his glory to the world, a life that's not held back and held down by your shame or the past mistakes, a life that isn't, that isn't held back or defined by the insignificant things in this world, a life that isn't, isn't dominated by the world's value system, but rather dominated by the love of Jesus Christ. If that sounds better for you, I want to invite you on a journey, but you don't have to walk the journey by yourself. And in a minute, we're going to pray together. But before we do, if you want to start that journey, a journey that looks a little bit more like Jesus, a journey that says, I want him to be the glorious Lord of my life, we want to help you on that journey. And if you would text CAPE, yes, just quietly pull out your phone. Nobody like, nobody needs to see you. Nobody, you don't need to make a big deal of it. That's, we, we don't want to embarrass you. But just text CAPE, yes, to 94000, 94000, CAPE, yes to 94,000. We want to give you the tools that you're going to need to walk out of the hole. And we don't want you walk alone, so we want to want to walk with you through that process. And so if you said that today, I'm going to have you stand and we're going to pray together, but because nobody prays alone, we're going to have everybody stand. And we're going to all pray together. So if you're able to, would you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. God, I pray in the name of Jesus that, number one, you would help us to see people the way that you see them, with infinite value, potential, and purpose embedded with the very image of God. And I pray that we would live in such a way that when people look at us, they would see you in us. And Father, we pray together that you would seal the decision in the hearts of the people who have decided to follow you for the first time today. Or people maybe who are coming back after a ways and a time away from you. I pray, God, that you would seal that in their hearts, that you would surround them with men and women of God that would help them walk the journey. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.